0: Welcome to the Thresholds podcast brought to you by Rahamim Ecology Centre, sharing the voice of pioneers in spiritual ecology, facilitating new and ancient wisdom for the challenges of our earth community. Dr Michelle Maloney is the co-founder and national convener of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance or AILA. With more than 25 years experience creating and managing social justice, community development and ecological justice programs, including 10 years working with First Nations peoples in Queensland, Michelle drives the strategy and governance of AILA and has also completed a PhD in law at Griffith University. Her work includes maintaining the extensive partnerships and networks that AILA has with the legal, academic, indigenous, and environmental advocacy communities, as well as designing and managing AILA programs and events, including AILA's Rights of Nature tribunals. Michelle is the author of a dozen articles and editor of two books about earth jurisprudence and wild law. Wild Law in Practice, 2014 and Law As If Earth Really Mattered, The Wild Law Judgments Project 2017, both with Rutledge. She teaches an annual earth law subject at Griffith University Law School. From early influences and motivations arising from a love of the natural world and The Great Work by Thomas Berry, Michelle's leadership has enabled many initiatives and networks to flourish, each of them linking earth-centered theory and practice calling into question the damaging structures and assumptions upon which our society is based. This particular recording is the edited interview. We also have longer, uncut versions available on our website, along with show notes to accompany each episode, so you find out more about all the ideas, people and books mentioned in the show. It's a pleasure to have you because um, you and I met, I think it was in 2014, um, at a Thomas Berry colloquium. And Wait, I remember being quite surprised to meet a, a, a lawyer and to see a, a presentation by a lawyer at such uh, a colloquium. Um, and so I just wanted to go back with you, Michelle, um, maybe to your childhood and to think about um, what was it about your childhood that sort of nurtured some kind of spiritual or maybe even a religious um, depth in you that seems to have um, become your work today, uh, motivating your work with Ayla, Australian Earth Alliance?
1: Yeah, what a great question. Um, Well, it's funny because (laughs) the simplest way to explain it is I have been madly in love with animals since as long as I could actually sit up probably and look at them. Um, Apparently... My nana often was reluctant to go for walks with me around the block because by the time we'd finished, there would be dogs and cats and many following us. Uh, (laughs) just love animals. Uh, I grew up in a family that I would describe as secular, but probably very influenced by the Catholic faith, faith, particularly my father who had been raised um, pretty strong Catholic traditions and had had gone to a school in a country town uh, that was run by the nuns. So I kind of grew up with the stories from him about, Catholicism and faith and many aspects of that but I was never I didn't go to church and so I didn't have a, a formal religion um, in terms of the spiritual connection I, I do think that there's been just this mad passionate love of mine for particularly animals um, or plants but I think as I've gotten older I've appreciated the plant community in, it, in all of its subtleties much much more significantly but I was quite famous as a kid for um, driving my family crazy whenever David Attenborough docos would come on and Mm. sit close to the tv and my mum would say all you would ever hear from me was oh it's so cute (laughs) oh it's so cute and my father would even tease me oh it's so cute shut up dad (laughs) so seriously from a from I cannot remember you know having a time when I suddenly discovered animals I've just always loved them so so Mm -hmm. that's art definitely and Deep empathy and compassion, um, we often joke the bleeding heart side comes from the Catholic uh, <laughs> <laughs> Catholic care and concern for the underdog, but certainly that love of, of the living world and the love of all things alive has probably been really my guiding light throughout my whole life. It's never mm. changed. Just deepened, I think. so. Yeah. yeah.
0: And at some stage I know that you were, I'm not sure if it was you, but Ayla... Um, was organising eco-spirituality retreats um, all around Australia. Uh, what is it that happens in those retreats that really helps the work of Ayla?
1: Well, it wasn't so much retreats by the, the usual definition of several folks going away from their normal lives into a different environment. We were organising um, more like workshops and discussions and series of public lectures in Brisbane particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that for our for the first one we did, um, it was really quite fascinating because we actually asked people from different faith communities to come along and talk about you know what they see as the role of um, caring for the earth or eco spirituality inside the sort of almost the formal texts or the formal structures of their faith system. Um, and we were very lucky to hear from people who were from you know the Catholic tradition. I'm just trying to think. The pause is because I'm remembering mm-hmm. um, there was another Christian school of thought, uh, faith and Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, we had even had some pagans come along and they were self-declared p- pagans.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Of course, a number of First Nations or Aboriginal people speaking, um, certainly from Ayla's point of view, and I can talk about our work in a moment, mm-hmm. but we believe that sort of the connection people feel through love and emotion however you want to describe spirituality, um, is a very powerful thing. And um, it's one of the reasons people feel so fulfilled when they do care for the earth or care for plants and animals. Um, it's a whole lot more than just anything pragmatic or survivalist. It's really about that that deep love and care um, mm. and connection with life. So, so that's why Ayla has always been interested in eco-spirituality. Um, lately that seems to have morphed into the earth ethics series that we do through conferences and other bits and pieces but eco-spirituality is always um, sort of an element of the earth ethics side of it as well it's a very open open space so
0: Mm. yeah well it's beautiful to see the crossover between probably what most people would assume is a very pragmatic very organized and, you know, very focused on detail and all of that, that lawyer world. Um, yeah. And look, Ayla is yeah. a bit
1: unusual for the lawyer world anyway. Yeah,
0: right. I was wondering about that. <laughs> <laughs> it must be kind of challenging um, to work in that space and to be taken seriously, I guess.
1: I think it was in the early days. Um, but I think when Rights of Nature started to get a lot more interest around the world, groups like ours who were basically sitting on the outside of the Western legal and economic system and looking in going, ah, oh, hello, there's something really wrong with a legal system that allows this amount of destruction of the living world.
0: Mm-hmm. I think
1: once people start to see rights of nature, um, concepts and ideas rise up, and that's that can be a very formal legal kind of analysis of, you know, how law interacts with the living world. Once that's spearheaded through um it became easier but at the same time it was never actually difficult for us because we were all individuals who were first and foremost you know in love with nature and the living world i say the living world because a lot of people get hung up on the sort of we are nature Mm, yes but we're often chasing a paradigm that doesn't see humans as part of nature that whole separation is in fact the issue so um so yeah so for ayla it was all people who love love the living world and so those connections across different so-called disciplines was easier for us than many others because we were already on the outside looking in Mm. and I personally I guess as the co-founder and I've been the the driving force through my I would I jokingly say my mad workaholism um, because we're all volunteers no one gets Mm. paid to work we have no core funding we occasionally scratch some money from a workshop or I I make my money through a bit of teaching and um, project work here and there but um, I certainly was super keen to make sure that AILA as a direct response to the great work and a direct response to the call from Thomas Berry around earth jurisprudence um, did in fact come from the heart and come from humanity's multiple interests in the living world. So for me, Western constructs and disciplines like law or economics or whatever, um, you know, they're only a couple of hundred years old.
0: They're mm-hmm.
1: a different way of humanity to classify itself, but it's not like a foundational truth. Um, so we play with that a lot. I guess first and foremost, we must be philosophers. I think someone yeah. once and I sat back and went, wow, I, I guess so. Because we're looking at those underpinning ideas and theories that that drive a society. So uh-huh. so crossovers into other disciplines has never been hard for me, but absolutely I would say that at the beginning of setting up AILA, um, certainly some of the legal profession didn't quite know what to make of us and these days we're so multidisciplinary um yeah most most people get it now which is pretty cool so.
0: yeah yeah it does seem to be catching on you mentioned Thomas Berry and the great work and I, I'm just interested in you personally how did you discover Thomas Berry's work and what impact did it have on you
1: yeah yeah no it's, a, it's actually a lovely story because I was it was 2009 and so just to recap after being a, a, a lover of animals from a little age and always very um very intellectually curious. I ended up going to university and studying politics and law, predominantly for environmental justice reasons, but getting quite disillusioned with legal issues. And I floated away from legal issues very early. I spent several years working in government in a legal section, but then floated away into environmental protection more broadly and also into community development and cultural heritage um, projects with a lot of Aboriginal friends. And, in fact, it wasn't until I came across the work of Thomas Berry that I came back into any any form of kind of legal critique or legal space. So that's a very quick version of what happened over 20 years because I think I was 38 in 2008 and I think it was 2009 when I went to a conference organised by some folks in Adelaide and they called it, you know, a wild law conference and I hadn't heard of any of this stuff. I was working in government at the time, and um, it's a a silly story, but I will tell it. I was literally sitting on the plane flying to Adelaide going, oh, I hope this isn't just full of hippies again. I I can get my teeth into some content. You know, as I I was kind of dabbling around in government in legal spaces and regulatory spaces and just was really craving, you know, some intellectual challenge or something. And so then when I arrived, um, there were people like – Peter Burden, when he was a PhD student, was one of the organisers, as well as Friends of the Earth. I walked into a room with 70 people, and most of them were lawyers, um, critiquing property law. Uh, There was Nicole Graham, who's written a fantastic book called Lawscape. It's quite old now, but um, Nicole Rogers, who's now a very good friend, looking at um, the role of law and culture and performing and performance art. Uh, Sam Alexander looking at degrowth and voluntary simplicity and challenging the growth paradigm. And I was just so excited. Every single idea was really fascinating. And all of it, all of it really was embedded into Thomas Berry's book, The Great Work, and coming out of Earth Jurisprudence and then work by Cormac Cullinan, who wrote a book in 2002 called Wild Law, A Manifesto for Earth Justice. So when I came to that conference, I was kind of just embedded inside this group of people really critiquing the system. Um, And by the system, I mean these sort of underpinning invisible rules and structures that really um, have built industrial and capitalist societies to where they are today. And so it was fantastic. Even in my little bio, I think I often say Michelle met and fell in love with Earth Jurisprudence in 2009. Mm -hmm. At that time, we formed up several conferences, but we created AILA. the end of 2011 and formally in 2012 um, and I, I always saw my personal response to the work as being really deeply inspired by Thomas Berry's book, The Great Work, because in it he just gives this wonderfully eloquent, you know, he writes so beautifully, gives this eloquent analysis of all the things that are kind of wrong with industrial society because we have allowed and encouraged the destruction of so much of nature or the living world. And within it, he looks at these four underpinning structures, um, law and government, economics, religion and education. And through that, really, I, I, I don't think I even realised I was doing it in 2012, but we, we were. And then I, I caught myself and realised that's exactly what we were doing. And what we were doing was responding to those four core areas and designing you know discussion spaces workshops conferences to start getting people talking about this and it was from that that today what's that many seven years later um i'm a lawyer not a mathematician very bad at them. Um, several years later when you look at the work we do and it is multidisciplinary but it all comes from critiquing daily practice and structural form in what aboriginal people would call the law mm. meaning what westerners think of the law but in Aboriginal culture, from the work I've done with beautiful elders like Mary Graham and Ross Williams and people I work very closely with, the differences in their culture, the law, the proper way, is daily practice of the rules and the, the right way to interact in the relationist ethos. So although we're still called Earth Laws Alliance, it really is law in that deeper sense of how do we live? How do we as human beings live on this planet or live in this place and, and, and act in the proper way? And, and structure of what we do across an economy or a education system the proper way. So it's mm-hmm. been absolutely delightful, fascinating journey, and um, I'm hoping I still have a couple of decades left to continue this journey.
0: Yes, indeed. And I noticed um, a few years back you you went over to the states and you actually met Brian Swim.
1: Yes, I did. <laughs> he would be so very wonderful.
0: familiar to a lot of our listeners. And I, I'm just yes. uh, wondering why you went to meet him and um, why was that so important for your work? Yeah, yeah,
1: cool. Um, in fact, the whole trip to the US was was important for my work. Let me just think. So, so before I, I met and fell in love with Earth Jurisprudence in 2009, I had actually started a PhD at the end of 2008 for various reasons, a point in my career where I could no longer do a lot of the traveling because I had fallen pregnant with my beautiful girl who's now 11. Um, but it was by starting the PhD and I was at, I looked at and still look at um, unsustainable consumption and in my case, the role of collective action, whether that's regulation or something else in reducing human impact due to unsustainable consumption. Um, so during that journey, doing the PhD and I was working part time and raising my baby and... I actually had the opportunity through some of the international networks that I'm part of to take up a one semester teaching position at um, the Center for Earth Jurisprudence, which is actually based out of a university in Florida. Uh, And the reason I took that opportunity was primarily so that I could bring that some of the material, and I don't mean the material, but modify and then introduce an earth jurisprudence course at a university in Australia, which I'm delighted to say I was able to do two years later. Um, so it was while I was over in Florida uh, that I went over to California in one of the breaks because I have a number of contacts as part of the International Alliance for the Rights of Nature or Global Alliance, garn And I remember simply looking up where Brian Swim was and was really happy to find that he was in fact, also in California. So I shot him an email and popped in to visit him. And of course, the reason I was interested in, I just wanted to meet someone who had played such a big part in the literature, uh, or what I would say is the literature around earth jurisprudence, um, with, with the book that he and uh, Thomas Berry wrote together, The Universe Story. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was so delightful. If anyone on the list has met him, they'll know exactly what I mean. He's one of those incredible humans who's done so much but he actually wants to talk to you about what you're doing and i remember at one point thinking oh i don't want to tell him anything more about my work i want him to talk (laughs) i had to to really push him to talk about himself and and uh, listening to his story about how long it took he and thomas to work on the universe story together and some of what that was like and what thomas was like in the process it was just really lovely so it was just really really nice I guess not just to meet someone who was professionally interesting, but you know, you never know what people are like. But to meet someone who was just such a lovely, lovely person was obviously pretty special as well. So hmm. yeah, I think we only had um, I think we just had a long lunch together, hmm. um, colleague then who was working at the um, and I can never remember the full name of where he teaches out of the Center for Integrated Studies or something in California in the Bay Area.
0: Yep. That's where he worked in there. Yeah. 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 Uh, you mentioned the universe story. Um, yes. It's exciting for me to meet someone who's out there in the world implementing this new story, in, you know, putting it <laughs> into action and you know, imagining what this new story could look like if it started to take shape. Yeah. Um, do many of your colleagues sort of come from that same motivation or does it drive you in a particular way?
1: Well, it's very interesting because in the early days when we were literally grappling with how we would even personally define earth jurisprudence, what does that look like in the Australian context, I think the universe story was something we spent a lot more time on. I certainly talk about it in every public talk I give about earth jurisprudence to explain, you know, the sheer context of it. Mm. I think there's sort of two answers to your question while the universe story as articulated by Barry by and Swim might not be prevalent in a lot of the circles we move in, what I have seen and something that we're going to be playing with over the next few years is a lot of groups, including the New Economy Network Australia, NENA, um, which is another group that myself and other wonderful colleagues have founded, which is a way of helping people, encouraging people who are already working on rethinking and restructuring human activities that today would fall under economic labels. um, how we can rebuild a different economy that's kinder to us and kinder to the planet. But a lot of people in that space are really grappling with how do we make a new story about us? How do we make a new story about humanity's role and care for each other and for the planet? So the narratives, discourse is really big in activist communities and particularly around the Wellbeing economy alliance which is an international group that we're part of (coughs) excuse me um so what we're going to do is and for example i've been invited to talk and be part of a lovely conversation in um, melbourne at the end of this month around climate stories and i'll be talking about the universe story in that context and we might find some ways to kind of weave it more <clears throat> more explicitly into some of those conversations as well.
0: Mm. Well, that's really exciting to have all of that context, <laughs> to have all yeah, of awesome. that context, you know, behind whatever it is that you're working on. So mm. just thinking about your work now, I was just wondering about with the earth laws, what are some of the, you know, for listeners that might be wondering what you're actually practically doing, what you're achieving, if you like, Um, what are some of the success stories that you've had um, through working in this field?
1: Yeah, it's a good question and probably helps me to actually do the formal elevator explanation of who we are. So (laughs) Australian Earth Laws Alliance was formed in 2012 by a small group of then concerned lawyers, today it's much broader than just law, um, who were inspired by earth jurisprudence of Thomas Berry's work to really question How can we transform modern industrial society from a fundamentally human-centred, growth-focused culture and and structural form to something much more compassionate and earth-centred? And how do we do that in a place? You know, it's a very place-based approach and we're very embedded in place in that we're obsessed with the Australian continent, the plants and the animals and the peoples here. So, Ayla has always been interested in the big picture thinking and then how do we translate that into very practical action? I mean, that's why I work in a little NGO, not in university, because a lot of what we do is having conversations with community groups and helping them think about the kinds of action they might take, you know, in their already busy, wonderful work um, that would help to achieve these kinds of goals. So, So, before I talk about our achievements, I'll just Briefly mentioned the way we've structured ourselves. And when I think ourselves, at any one time, Ayla has between 20 and 25 rather special and amazing human beings volunteering. No one gets paid to do ALA work specifically, including myself. As I said, I, I earn an income from other bits and pieces, some of which now floats through ALA, but none of the folks who work with me get paid. So we've got a mishmash of people donating half a day or two hours a month, or some folks are so keen on AILA now, I've got a couple of people, you know, working two days a week voluntarily for the work within AILA. It's very exciting. And Mm. within the structures that we started to put together in 2012, um, we designed a very fluid way of thinking about the work we wanted to do. And if anyone was to go to our website, which is earthlaws.org.au, under our programs there's a list of activities but if you look at how we work what we tell people and what we actually have been doing and have been pretty pretty disciplined sticking to this sort of approach is we think about how do we change culture how do we so there's five core themes to the work we do changing culture um reconnecting law governance and society to what matters and by that we mean the living world indigenous knowledge and science The third element of our work is building communities and by that, supporting communities in a completely humble, non-arrogant sort of way. Um, There's so many great people out there doing stuff already. Earth jurisprudence can, for some folks, help offer a framework. Now, the fourth theme is the one that's really exploded for us over the last five years, which is very exciting, which is creating alternatives, actually creating models of various ways of working and being in society that are earth centred and showing how they can work. And I'll come back to that because that's kind of a lot of the work that we do. And then the fifth um, element of these five themes is actually the structural and law reform. Um, Mm. Usually in Western society, we have taken the long view despite the terrible, horrific pressures of climate change around us. We were never about fighting one campaign at a time. We have always been about systems change um, and help people critique the current system and actually understand it that would be that would fall under education but it's so powerful because if you can't unlock someone's mind and decolonize it then it's very hard for them to build something new mm-hmm. So inside that framework of work we've done what we can point to as achievements is probably I'll try to think quickly on my feet but the following list of good things number one we have probably been the only organization to build, the network of whatever we've got on our mailing list now, many thousands and thousands of people who think about earth jurisprudence and earth-centred law and governance in a way that's probably a bit more coherent and under the framework of earth jurisprudence. We've opened up public discourse around these issues through a full range of conferences and such, introduced um, the first university course in Australia back in 2016 on earth jurisprudence for young law students, opened up regular spaces for the legal profession, the economic profession, and a whole bunch of other, oh, the arts, even some engineers and and doctors and others who come in and out of our space, like really opened up a space for them to critically analyse their role through their own work and their own professions um, in either perpetuating or changing this human-centred worldview. So the conferences, the activities, the community-building work we do all brings people into a place where they can be supported to really deeply, critically analyse the problems that we're facing, which most of them do, but we kind of unlock, and we've been told this in all the feedback, we help them really unlock a positive angle on what they can do next. Um, We have a community earth laws network at the moment that's got about five communities around Australia who are working on rights of nature, community declarations, and a couple are working on local lawmaking as a way of symbolically and eventually, eventually le- uh, legally speaking, trying to shift the system to make people aware of rights of nature. And ecological limits is a very important part of our work. So a lot of the rights of nature work and Earth laws work we do is within the context of planetary boundaries. So we bring all of that into a space where people can do something practical with it. We've also designed probably an Aussie first, if not global first, really practical pathway through existing knowledge systems, ecological understandings, and transitioning the economy so that we can do bioregional governance and caring for country. We've auspiced the new Economy Network Australia so that thousands and thousands of people are able to think differently about the economy and bring an earth-centred worldview into their existing work. We've just given birth to a brand new, exciting on um, space called future dreaming which was originally our program for working in partnership with indigenous friends and colleagues but now it's its own formal entity and its mission is really to deliver a, a huge chunk of what Ayla wants to see happen but doing it in a proper way uh, with uh, aboriginal and non-aboriginal people working together to share ecological knowledge um, there's a real need and a real hunger among what we might call mainstream community to connect with aboriginal knowledge and wisdom um, in a way that's fair and equitable and appropriate. So that's what future dreaming is all about. We helped um, a minister, uh, um, MP, introduce the very first rights of nature bill into Western Australian parliament last year. Uh, we've built the ocean rights network across the Pacific. We've got tons of colleagues forming up in the Asia Pacific region, and we're developing a, a regional um, space for all of us to play together and so much more, Mm -hmm. publications and articles. So although we haven't, you know, been able to change big law yet, and the context for that is because we formed in the same year that Tony Abbott and his gang got in and trashed everything that mattered uh, in terms of environmental and social justice structures. So for our entire existence, our focus has been grassroots uh, work, pushing the change from the bottom up, whilst also mapping out and showing off what could be done at a structural, collective, legal level. So, so yeah, it's been quite remarkable. And there's a whole t- other things We've got the Earth Arts Program. We've got dozens and dozens of artists who've connected to our work and the feedback they give us is it's helped them with the structure. Some have been so inspired simply by reading the website that they've gone off and done art exhibitions around earth jurisprudence. Um, yeah, so it's been, you know, a gentle journey but one that we hope other people have benefited from as much as we have. Um, mm.
0: so, Yeah, that is just staggering, Michelle. <laughs> the, oh, I don't know about that. All of that.
1: I don't. I never.
0: <laughs> thank you. And it you, goes on I, and on.
1: Well, I, I never feel ever that we ever do enough, and I always <laughs> do so much more. But I am really proud of of the things we've done, and the mm. people. It's just so wonderful. So it's obviously a great joy for me. My work life through Ayla has been absolute joy. It's just, um, yeah. It
0: the feels pin- like a, a really historic moment um, that, that you're really facilitating this shift uh, away from our human-centred mindset to something completely different that is so needed. Um, it's, Look, it's I, I would
1: hope so, but I would never be so bold as to think <laughs> like we are one of many, 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 literally millions of voices on the planet trying to move to something better, with some days particularly after the bushfires which have devastated all of us there are some days i i really don't even want to get out of bed but when i think about mother earth and plants and animals but also just the sheer volume of incredible humans who are out there working so hard to shift it um so if we can play a part in that and this is not false humility this is an awareness that there's seven billion people on the earth and there's an awful lot of them doing good things so we're one of many in there but mm-hmm. all i can say is it's it is it is an incredible journey to work as a fully, fully happy human being, knowing the work you do makes you happy and seems to bring an awful lot of positivity to others. I mean, that's that's pretty cool. You can't ask for much more than that, eh? Mm,
0: that's right. It seems like a lot of this is coming from your leadership because I'm just looking at the list of about seven different networks and initiatives <laughs> and you know groups um, that I've seen. I think it was in your email signature. Ah, yeah,
1: I do that to promote them, not myself, but (laughs) comments that I must be some kind of mad woman who never sleeps. And I think
0: that's that's close to the mark. That's close to the mark, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, we'll we'll put a list of all of those things in our show notes so that people can go and have a look because it really is extraordinary. Um, All these initiatives that are going on that you are directing or steering um, or co-founding.
1: Yes. Uh, It's
0: very exciting work. Oh, thank you, you. it's um, lovely. If you don't mind me asking, um, I know that some years back you actually had a a bit of a health scare. um, Oh, yeah, no, I
1: I talk very openly about my cancer journey, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, and, I mean, that must have, I mean, looking at all that you have achieved and then then considering what you have struggled through, um, it makes it even more inspiring.
1: Well, I hope so because... (laughs) True definition of inspiring is not so much an ego-centered thing, but a way of showing. You know, I get inspired by other people who work so hard and so tirelessly. They they inspire me to keep going. So if my story inspires others, that's terrific. And and I'll briefly tell it to you because there are moments of it that are quite sort of you know tragic, funny. Um. So, so I had finished the PhD in when was it? The end of twenty. 2014, I submitted in the December and I had already arranged to do the six or the five month semester teaching at the Center for Earth Jurisprudence in the US. So um, it was a really amazing experience. But my little girl, who was then six and a half, seven, and I were obviously delighted to come home. We got home in the May of 2015, literally got home on the Friday. It was the first time I'd had to just sit back, breathe and go, wow, I finished the PhD got through i found out in the march that it had all been approved without any further changes which is delightful and relatively rare in the law field and um so suddenly i was sitting back going "Woohoo! i'm free of the phd i'm back from the u.s now it's all about ayla hmm. and the very next day i was wrestling on the lounge with my daughter and she she pushed on my chest to get up and we found a rather large lump in my right boob um, went to the gp on the wednesday was booked in for surgery on the following Tuesday it was that fast Um, and what concerned them was that the lump was two and a half centimetres which isn't huge but it was a particular type that was um, very very fast moving so my whole life just got turned upside down and what the, the only way I can describe it to anyone who's not been through it is one minute you're cheerfully pretending that you're immortal and you know doing what all humans do which is blunder about each day as if as if we've got all the time in the world. Admittedly, I was always in a rush to do fun, fun things, but then suddenly that whole kind of the fabric in front of you that pretends that, you know, you're gonna be here forever is torn apart in a way that's visceral and real. And you can't explain it to anyone unless they've actually had some kind of life-threatening moment. And it all just looked like it was gonna go away. So all I could think of was um, I didn't wanna leave my seven-year-old daughter by herself. I didn't wanna leave my husband by himself. And I sure as hell didn't want to leave Ayla. you know, hmm. work. it's hugely important. And the tragic comedy thing is, whereas a lot of eyes, so I had to have um, a full mastectomy and um, five months of chemo, I think. It was horrendous. Yeah. Anyone who survived breast, breast cancer and had chemo, because it's a fast growing cancer, there's lots of different kinds of cancer. Um, but they douse you, you know, two inches away from death, so that they can try to keep all of the uh, any free floating cancer cells in your body, and make them go away. Then I went through two months of daily radiation. So by the end of it, I was bloated, bald, and on fire, with bandage from my chin right down to my belly button. Um, it was horrible, but I managed to keep thinking through the whole thing. I never got much brain fog, and there are there are cute stories of friends coming to visit, and I'm lying there with tears streaming down my eyes because the chemo makes your eyes all ooky with my little beanie on in bed working because Mm -hmm. it it was like my anchor to the world suddenly you know from being this busy woman my whole world was stripped away and I was stuck in bed so even then and this is what I joke to people you know um, I will never quit Ailer until there's literally no air left in my lungs because (sighs) I love it and I love continuing to work on it and play with it. And it doesn't feel like work. It really doesn't. It's not, oh, it's Monday morning. It's <clears throat> which project am I working on now, whatever time of day it is. So, mm. so it's a, on the one hand, was horrible and terrifying. And, and I'm sorry for sniffling. I've got a bit of asthma. Um, and people say, oh, did it change your perspective? And I say, no, because I was really, really lucky. I seem to have been born grateful, born doing the things I loved. And to me, the things I've loved have always been you know, caring about life, so I didn't really need a wake-up call in any way to value those things. Um, The only thing it's given me is a bit of a sense of urgency that it could come back really at any time, and what I want to do is build Ayla's work so that a lot of young people can come through so that if I disappear, um, all the wonderful humans who volunteer right now might be able to make a living out of it, so Mm -hmm. that's my journey. Um, It took a couple of years to sort of come back to what I Say full steam ahead but just lucky just and that's the other thing. getting cancer in Australia in Brisbane um, if you want to get cancer this is the place to get it because you're 10 minutes away from an amazing hospital um, the public health system fixed me you know if I was in a lot of other countries on earth I would have just died because I don't have any money um, yeah just an amazing amazing journey with hugely hugely excellent people in it so in my family my god just so amazing so mm-hmm. I was just yeah. just lucky in so many ways we've lucky we found it only. lucky I got such good treatment lucky I had so many lovely people looking after me
0: yeah with all that you've founded and achieved and and, and all of, all of the various hats that you wear and also the struggles that you've been through it occurs to me that you must have sort of practices or something that keeps you on that track of love and life and authenticity um what is it that keeps you on that mark
1: that is such a good question I like that question um (coughs) the very things that probably motivated me from day one are still here today and that is just almost imprinted in the DNA, just a love of plants and animals. And truly, um, if I have a bad day and I'm literally lying in bed in fetal position, worried about my planet or my continent, the only thing that gets me up, um, even more than the people I love, is literally the idea of all the little animals and plants that we do so much harm to through our actions, through Mm -hmm. through our very deeply flawed lack of relationship with Mother Earth. So I think it is literally the daily reimagining of my relationship with these plants and animals, my obligation as a good earthling to care. I think it's that, and I don't take full credit for that because, as I say, I grew up um, watching David Attenborough. But the reason I grew up being supported with those kinds of activities is because my parents also loved nature. Um, they weren't formally employed or what anyone would call today an activist, but. Um, my parents were pretty special, and they loved you know life, social justice, all the things um, that good people love, I think. so so the thing that motivates me today is probably still exactly the same thing that v- motivated me when I was twelve, working hard at grade seven or fifteen, working hard in grade ten.
0: Is that something that you build into your day as a you know formal structure as a ritual? As a routine?
1: No, no, mm. I don't have to because I am an obsessive. Um, <laughs> It's probably very unhealthy. Um, My husband watched me sort of gently torture myself through the bushfires because I'm asthmatic. I couldn't go anywhere to help. I was up here in Brisbane watching things unfold and he says my biggest problem is turning my brain off from thinking about it all the time. So Mm. the things I do do though, and particularly to help keep, keep myself more on an even keel and less on a workaholic bent, which is, you know, it's not good, but I think it's part of the passion for the things that I do, um, is literally, we're only about 10 minutes from um, Nudgee Beach in Brisbane. So I joke, I grew up in the middle of the desert in Queensland, but now I'm, I'm an old swamp lady. So we, we live near the mangroves. And so other than the height of summer where you would literally get carried away by s- certain exciting species of mosquito, um, I, I walk down there a couple of times a week with my dog. Um, and although I would love to be a wildlife carer, Um, and I I hope to be down the track right now. We still have a lovely old dog and, um, he's my bestest furry friend and he, he has kept me sane through the PhD and kept me company through my chemo when, when other humans couldn't be around me when I was too toxic. Um, so being with, being with animals is definitely the thing that lights me up in a crazy, crazy way and discovering new species of plants. So I, I have to say I would, I would benefit from having some kind of daily meditative practice, but I think the closest I get is playing with my daughter, walking my dog, and watching the ever-changing landscape of a mangrove, which, you know, is a pretty amazing ecosystem. Some days you go down there and the tide's out and all the crabs are clicking about and marching about in the mud, and other days the, the water's right up and you've got, you know, the bird life's gone crazy and there's human kayakers tootling about so it's a pretty inspiring space to kind of to go down to but yeah i I, i've never been someone who's been very good at (laughs) at routine so (laughs) even a ritual to keep myself sane I, i think ayla has benefited from that because if i ever have neurotic moments and i can't sleep i'm up reading or writing doing something to make myself feel a bit better and then go back to sleep so
0: yeah Oh, that's beautiful. Um, I wonder what happens inside of you when you're actually down at, like, for example, at the mangroves. What do you feel happening?
1: Well, it's funny you should ask that because I, I took a friend there who was visiting from out of town on Sunday and we were walking. There's a little boardwalk, it's a, it's a they call it a green zone. It's fantastic because no one's allowed to fish or do anything much in there. It's because all the bubba fish are growing and all of that. It's a nursery, and there's if I've had a really busy day and I and I know, you know, I know I spend too much time on my computer and too much time inside. Um, given that I love nature, but you know, the nature of 21st century is our communication pathways are often online because I'm trying to be good and not travel. Mm-hmm. So anyway, if I'm a bit mentally clogged up from work, you 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 hit this boardwalk and you start to walk and it's th- winds through these beautiful old, really old, tall mangrove trees, and you know you're always checking the terrain because everything changes and then but there is a moment where the walk itself opens up and you're looking out along the creek and out to Moreton Bay and I think in terms of what am I feeling that's the moment when I relax Um, and that's nature for you isn't it you know you're the close-up stuff when I'm observing the flowers and the leaves and watching the trees and seeing what they're all up to is attention but when I get to that point and the the mangroves open up to the, to the creek mouth, and then the sky opens up, there's just this incredible sense of relief. You can feel everything let go, and then the rest of the walk, I'm just, you know, chilling out. Occasionally I might be thinking about work because I do do that an awful lot. Um, Razzie, my dog Raz, Raz and I just kind of tootle along and, and chat and uh, watch the world go by. Mm. So been half an hour there, and I do that in winter. I do it nearly every day, but in the summer I, you know, I'm trying to avoid a lot of insects and mm. heat. Um, a couple of times a week if I'm lucky so so yeah it's it's like I guess everyone's experience of nature you know we are just a bunch of molecules that have come out of the earth so whenever we're closer to it we obviously feel better and we feel more ourselves than in this overly complicated world we've made for ourselves
0: Mm, yeah thank you so much for sharing that Um, (laughs) I feel like um, we probably better start winding up because I know you kind of have to take off. But um, before we do, did you happen to have any readings that you kind of prepared or that's okay if you don't have it but um, some some people have something like quotes that they want to read out or something like that.
1: Oh, no, I feel like a terrible failure. No,
0: no, don't. I'm so sorry. You don't need it. You don't need it. No, that's really fun. I
1: I could recommend to others what Mm -hmm. they should. I think that if you haven't read The Great Work by Thomas Berry, you're really missing out mm. on a both disturbing and delightful critique of of the mess we've made for ourselves and some of the ways we can get out of it. So definitely read The Great Work. And if in doubt, just Google Thomas Berry quotes mm. and you'll see some of the beautiful quotes he, he has talking about our interconnectedness and the relationship with the living world. So although I, um, I failed doing my homework, which well, I'll probably really with guilt given my Catholic upbringing and my work.
0: <laughs> no, no, that's brilliant. No, no. That recommendation is brilliant. Too. Uh, just read some yeah, quotes. Read, yeah.
1: Definitely read Thomas Berry. And, mm. you know, in this day and age, you can Google his quotes and the universe story with Brian Swim. Oh, and if you've got children, dig up the kids version of the universe story. It's uh, three A4 sized um, books. They're not giant books. They're, they're pretty thin. Um, but I raised my daughter on them. So uh, mm. her argument in grade one with someone who was talking about God was actually about stardust. So I was secretly appalled and also proud that my my story time and raising of my child had brought her into a place where she was challenging other people's religions. But we, we have tempered that tendency. Um, but we still love Thomas Berry.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, and Mary Graham. I'm working with... Mm mary graham oh, really mm. mary graham and even her other organization black card truly really she's one of the most amazing people i've ever had the privilege to meet let alone work with um, and she's an aboriginal philosopher and her articles open up particularly non-aboriginal minds to the deeper the deeper structures of Aboriginal thought and the relationist ethos and all of these amazing elements of their ancient governance system. I truly can't recommend her enough as particularly as, uh, as someone who can give insights into one of the most amazing cultures on earth. So yeah, look at Mary Graham. Mm,
0: Thank you for that. That's something new. No worries. Yeah. Yeah. You and all of the others working in the wonderful Ayla community are volunteers yes so how can people help you out with that
1: oh please give us money god <laughs> um yes let let me share some some things so our main website we call her the mothership <laughs> <laughs> um www.earthlaws so earth e-a-r-t-h-l-a-w-s.org.au we have a little donate button um, this year we're going to try to get a bit more grown up about money so that I can start bringing amazing young people in. But what we do have is two things we love to ask. So if people have a little bit of money, even 10 bucks, and you'd like to donate it, it all makes a difference to a group like us. We really value it. And we're starting to grow monthly supporters. We've got about 10 people who donate between them about $350 a month, and that's paying for our phone bills and our internet. Um, very humble things, but it's so, so appreciated. Um, we're going to do some proper grown-up comm strategies and fundraising this year. But if you're a person who thinks this work is of interest, I would say definitely think about giving a little bit of donation to us. And if you want to get involved with your own work, your community or you personally, send us an email, um, convenor at earthlaws.org.au. We welcome people in with their own projects that they want to nestle under the ALAC loving umbrella or people who are we have a lot of lost souls who don't like their work anymore and they want to do something else until they find a transition point um, we've got a lot of great professional and student volunteers across many different areas of interest now so everybody's welcome and your mm-hmm. skills um, is obviously going to be helpful to all groups so yeah money and time it's all we have in need
0: <laughs> oh, that's very exciting um, thank you so much for sharing all about ayla and It was very exciting for me to hear um, just how you're putting into practice the story of the universe uh, in such a way that Thomas Perry imagined. And, um, yeah, I wish you well as you continue your great work, reimagining the human at the species level. Thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, please
1: keep in touch. We love what Rahamim um, do and what you get up to down there too. So I look forward to further discussions. Thanks so much.
0: Yeah, thanks, Michelle. The Thresholds team at Rahamim live, work and create this podcast on the lands which have been and always will be Wiradjuri country. We give our respect and gratitude to their elders past, present and emerging who continue to teach us ancient wisdom for living in harmony within Earth's limits. Rahamim Ecology Centre is an ecological ministry of the Sisters of Mercy of Australia and Papua New Guinea facilitating a new worldview for our times and our relationship with the natural world through education, spirituality and advocacy. For more information about us and our programs, please visit www.rahamim.org.au. The Thresholds podcast is edited by Anastasia Freeman.